And Father, we know that it is your will that we engage in activities that would lead us to this full maturity. So we'd ask, Lord, that you would do that, that you would guide us as we hear your word, put in our memories those things which you want us to apply, and help us in this, in Jesus' name, amen. So what does a mature Christian look like? Well, some would say they go to Bible study or they study the apostles' doctrine, they're involved in prayer, they're involved in fellowship and the breaking of bread, those are the things that are spelled out in the book of Acts, and that's what the first century church did. Well, what does Scripture have to say about being mature as opposed to being immature? And what are some of the tools we need to know that we are mature in the Lord? What exactly is in it for us that we need to follow? This is where we would put shoe leather to our faith. And as we do this, this idea of works, you know, works are great, but they don't save us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says we are saved by faith through grace and, and not by works, lest any man should boast. And so when it comes to being mature, I remember Pastor Dave, I, I gave him a question. And I said, well, what is the meat of the word? And he said, meat of the word is doing the word, is what the meat is. And I've always remembered that. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read through verses 11 through 13. And in this passage... God provided specific offices in the church to aid in the maturing of the saints. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we know that God gave us these individuals, these offices, for our benefit that we might grow up in the Lord. You know, if, if you had a child and you decided to get up in the morning and you're going to feed the child, you, you made the child breakfast, it was maybe eggs and bacon, and you supplied that, and you wiped their face, and you made sure the clothes were laid out, and you helped them put the clothes on, and they got everything done just the way they're supposed to and got ready to go after, off to school. If you did that for a child, you would say that was good. If you did that for a child who is 15 you would say that's not so good. A child should be doing all of those things already by themselves. It means they are maturing. For a three or four-year-old, that is not the case. You have to help them along the way. You have to watch their every step and nurture them at every step of their lives to make sure that they do not fall by the wayside because they're so prone to error and to danger. Secondly, worrying in the pursuit of riches and pleasure in seeking after those things prevents maturity from developing. Luke chapter 8 verse 14. Of course, this is the parable of the sower of the seed. And if you remember the parable, you had four types of soil and the seed was sown on that soil. The first one was the, the path, the hard path. And the birds came along, which represented the enemy or Satan and took the word out. It never took root. Then you had the one where the seed fell on the stony ground and it took root and it came up but the root was not very deep it was shallow and then when persecution and the pursuit of riches those types of things came in 
then the, the plant became unfruitful and it did not produce any fruit whatsoever. The person never grows. Also, the individual that grows up and all the weeds come up and the weeds are not taken care of gets choked out by the cares of this life, the pursuit of riches, that type of thing. If we do that, if we focus on that, we will never go on to maturity. We will never become what Christ wants us to be. The third thing, God prescribes specific trials for us to bring us to maturity. Now, you might think, trials, I I thought it's all about health, wealth, and prosperity and being healthy all the time. As I told the church here a couple of weeks ago, we used to have a guy here that didn't believe he would die if he just had enough faith because in the Gospel of John, John, uh, Jesus told Mary that if you believe in me, you'll never die. And, of course, that's just wrong. We have trials and to the point where we actually succumb to those trials and we die. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And also, we are to consider our possessions like trash in comparison to gaining knowledge of Christ. And we are to know that we will never be perfected in this life. And these are the views we're supposed to hold if we would like to become mature. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 16, it's a little longer passage here, and I'll just read it. But whatever was to my profit, I now considered loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through, through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained all of this or have already been made perfect. You see, we, we never get to that point where we are perfected, where we never cease to sin. But as I was taught, we will go on to maturity and we will not become sinless, but we will sin less. Now going on verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forth what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That used to be a song we used to sing back at uh, Calvary Chapel San Diego. Dave was there at Calvary Chapel San Diego before he went out and started La Mesa. But that was a, a scripture song that we sang all the time. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And again, that is considering the possessions of this life as trash in relation to gaining the knowledge of Christ, knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. That's what we're supposed to be after. And by the way, this word for mature is teleos. And teleos just means to be complete and, and grow completely mentally and spiritually or in moral character. That's what mature means as far as scripture is concerned and it is God's will that we are mature in Colossians chapter 4 verse 12 Epaphras one who is 
or who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So I, I think the point is being made here that we're supposed to grow up, so to speak. You know, it was King David when he was almost uh, dead, when he was on his deathbed, called Solomon in. And one of the things he told him to be was a man. He said, be a man. Don't be uh, lazy. Don't be non-motivated or unmotivated in your life, but be a man. Pursue things that are good, that are moral, that are right, that are just and are fair, and stand up for those things no matter what the consequences might be. And that's the counsel that David gave to his son Solomon. So the work of becoming mature also means we're going to strive in our character development. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together And the words that's used here, in perfect unity, it means maturity. It's the same word, teleos, that we would be brought to full maturity if we put all these things into our character bank, so to speak. So we are to be mature and informed about the basic teachings of Christ and Christian doctrine as well. We know that Paul wrote to Timothy, said, if you watch your life and doctrine closely, you'll save not only yourself, but your hearers as well. Now, in the men's group that we have here, on, we both have one both on Saturday morning and we have one that meets on Wednesdays. On Wednesdays, we've been going through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Uh, verse 1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and faith in God, instructions about baptisms, and laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. Now, the first time I, I brought this up, I said, well, let's go through each one of these. Like, for instance, baptisms. You know, we think, well, there's water baptism and there's baptism of repentance. That John, you know that there are 10 different baptisms in the New Testament. There's the baptism of repentance, suffering of the Spirit by fire, by water, by phone, by Moses, by Jesus, by cloud, by the sea, and the dead. That's actually 11. That doesn't count the one in the Old Testament, the proselytizing the Jews did when somebody was brought into the faith, they would baptize them there as well. And do we know, these are basic teachings of the Christian faith, like baptism for the dead. Does it say that we're supposed to be baptized for the dead? Or was Paul making a case for the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Well, that's exactly what he was doing. He wasn't saying, get involved in it like some other religions would practice, being baptized for the dead. Or like the laying on of hands. What is the laying on of hands? Grabbing somebody out of the church and escorting them out? Come on, buddy, you're getting out of here. Well, you're not going to mess up this church, you know, that type of thing. No, it's, it can be for the commissioning, appointing, authorizing, and recognition of the work of the ministry that the person is involved in. For a blessing, it can be for healing, all of those things. And these are basics of the Christian faith. And the wisdom in Jesus Christ and Him crucified is what we're supposed to seek after, the one who is mature, and not the earthly wisdom. 
Paul makes a distinction in 1 Corinthians about that, that he speaks the message of wisdom to the mature. And that is knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified and not gaining all the wisdom of the world. Because what's going to happen to the wisdom of this world? It's going to go by the wayside. We're not going to be using it at all. But if we know Jesus Christ and, it, quote, him crucified, that means him dying. If we're able to garner that for ourselves, we die to the flesh and we live for Christ. Now, that's what scripture has to say about being mature. But what about practical hands-on tools? Now, I have right here this bag, Husky. Now, I don't know about you, but when we were growing up, Husky had a different connotation. It meant fat. That's what it meant. But I have this little bag here. Now, if you're an electrician, an electrician will sometimes carry a bucket, and it has a skirt on it, and you have different tools on the inside. And some of these tools are basic. Like, for instance, you have a knife. This knife is used for cutting Romex. You slice the Romex and you cut it around and you peel it off. You can use it to cut wire, but there are other things that are used to cut wire besides those. Another thing that an electrician will have is a pair of just regular pliers because he has to pull some wire sometimes, he grabs it, and you can have this kind of plier, or you can have a more sturdy, stout type of plier like this, and they get even bigger because you take those wires and you twist them around like this, and you put a wire nut on it, and by the way, I'm not an electrician. But then there are some little more specialty items like black tape. You need some black tape. Now, if you say you're an electrician, and you don't have these... What are you? You're an imposter. You, you are not an electrician. And if you're really good, you're, you're gaining your apprenticeship, you're going on in whatever period you might be in, so to speak. Sometimes that's, that's how that they rate the individual who's an electrician. If you're really good, then you get one of these, like this little one. This isn't really a big expensive one. You go, ooh, that's fun. And you know a little bit more about being an electrician. And if you don't have one of those, you start out with something a little more simple, like this. And you go, well, what's that for? Well, you take these two prods and you stick it in the positive and the neutral side to find out if it is 110 or if it is 220 and it lights up. You can use this one, but this is for the beginner. If you're using this one and you're a beginner, what might happen to this? You might fry it, right? But if you use this one, you're pretty safe. And then what if you said, well, but I like this, but instead of using this, why don't I use this? And what's going to happen to you? There's going to be sparks everywhere. Now, if you want to start relating this stuff spiritually... Some people who are immature, they think they got it down and they take their tools and they go, I'm going to use a screwdriver to test the voltage. And you stick it in the socket and all of a sudden, well, I just blew it. I've made a big mistake. I offended somebody. There were sparks. There was flames. There was fire. It was no good. What am I supposed to do? The person is not trained to use the tools and we're supposed to be trained. But then if you decide, well, I'm going to go to Bible college. And if I go to Bible college, then I'm going to get a little bit better at, quote, unquote, being an electrician. And you get things like this. And you go, what is that? That's a phenortner. 
No, just kidding. It, this is a splicer for MC Cable. And you might say, well, what's MC Cable? I have no idea what that is. And you see how important it is to be somebody who is well-versed in the scripture? And if you're not, you might grab a tool for your tool bag that doesn't even apply like this. Do you guys know what this is? Now, if you're a plumber, you know what this is. This is for a plumber. This is not for an electrician. This goes in a tub. You stick it down there, and the ring in the bottom of the tub, it'll take it out. It's a special tool for that. But if you're carrying it around as an electrician, what good is that going to do? It's not going to do good at all. And so we have all of these tools, and we think, well, I I need that. I'm going to put all these tools in my bag. I'm going to become mature. And so what about the practical tools that we would carry with us so that we can go out and live our lives in such a way where we can be a witness every single day, and we have our tool bag? Now, the guys who have been meeting with me, they already know all this, and we're just going to review it a little bit. For instance... Somebody comes along and you're inside the church and you say to somebody inside the church, how you doing? And they go, good, but you know, I have this question. I don't know if I'm really even saved. And you ask them, well, did you say a prayer? Did you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Did you invite him into your heart and all of those things? They said, yes. And you say, well, did you do that more than once? Well, yes, I've done it several times, but I don't know if I've saved. I think I lost my salvation. But see, if you had the scripture with you, like 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, or Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 13 and 14 in there, those three verses say you have the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the things which are to come. Now, how good is a guarantee if God gets it? It's absolute. How good is your guarantee if you got a guarantee from Hollywood Video? Or Blockbuster? It is no good whatsoever. But God said, I'm giving you my spirit as a deposit guaranteeing you don't have to worry about losing your salvation. And the people go into Hebrews chapter 6 and they start saying things like, well, you've tasted of the heavenly gift, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and the person who refuses at that point or turns away from Christ, there's no act of repentance left for them and they're lost. But if you go down to verse 9, it says, but I expect better things of you, things that accompany salvation. And if you have the wrong tool, if you're an electrician and you grab a plumbing tool, you start giving them erroneous verses that don't apply and they have no assurance. And then they walk away thinking, well, I'm probably just lost anyhow. I can't get saved. What about this idea of double predestination? I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but some people believe that you were born to be saved and you have no choice in the matter and you don't get to choose because it's God's choice. He has everything to do with salvation. You have nothing to do with it. And then there are those that are saved that are completely lost. They're born as matchheads just to be flame on fire for all of eternity. And they use passages out of the book of Romans to say that. But if you go back and you use like Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, that says you have the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing those things which are to come, then you're able to help them in their walk and set them straight as far as maturity is concerned. Well, what about just getting saved? Somebody comes up to you and says, I want to get saved. Do you know the scriptures that say how to get saved? Like, for instance, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. What about Acts chapter 16, verse 30? I had to think about it for a second. The Philippian jailer 
that was there. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. We're supposed to have, we're supposed to be able, and the guys will recognize this uh, illustration. We have this sword and we're supposed to pull out the sword. And when you pull it out, it's supposed to go shing like that. It's supposed to ring because it is a finely tuned sword. Now there are occasions where I've gone out and witnessed and I've taken the sword instead of using the blade, I've turned it. And I've whacked him over the head with it. And I'll tell you that story in a minute. But I ended up being like the electrician who has a plumbing tool. And I wasn't using it properly. And I lost the opportunity to actually lead them to Christ. Or what about this? A Jehovah Witness or a Mormon comes to your door and says, um, especially Jehovah Witness, Jesus is not God. He's Michael the Archangel. Do you guys have deity verses memorized? Or you can just pull them out. And if they say, well, yeah, Jesus was actually a spirit being Michael the Archangel. And he came down here and he was the son of God. But then he went back and he became a, a spirit being once again. And they will say, well, John 1, 1 says in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was a God. The first question you can ask him is, well, what kind of God was he? I thought there's only one God. And the Jehovah Witnesses will say, yes, there's only one God. That is true. But then you go, well, what kind of God is Jesus? He's not a God like us. Even though it says in what, Psalm 82, that you are gods. God calls us all gods. So we are definitely not like Jesus. And we're definitely not like Jehovah. So what kind of God is he? There must be polytheists, more than one God. And then also they think that when you die, you get a second chance. And so I always ask them, I say, you know, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. And so I always tell them, if you're right, I get another chance. If I'm right, you don't get another chance. There's only judgment to face. And so if I do nothing, I'm still safe, right? Also, uh, one of these, if you want to study up on this a little more, I, I was having a conversation with a couple of Jehovah Witnesses, and I've talked to them on a few occasions. And this one guy, his name is Tim. He, he came up and he started talking to me and, and we were talking about the deity of Christ. And by the way, I, I need to digress. Deity of Christ. John 1, 1. Titus 2, 13. Colossians 1, 15. Colossians 2, 9. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Romans 9, 5. Why will we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? We're to know these verses. 1 John 5, 20 says he is the uh, true God and eternal life. That's what he is. He is the uh, invisible God. He was created in the exact image in Colossians. He's, he's exactly like the Father. We need to know these deity verses. Isaiah 44, 6 says, He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And if you go to Revelation chapter 22, beginning in about verse 12 through verse 16, Jesus calls himself the first and the last. And he goes on to say in verse 16, I am. It was Jesus who was talking and claiming to be Isaiah chapter 44, the first and the last. So we need to have these ready to just pull out and use at a moment's notice. We have to have those deity verses down. So the Jehovah Witnesses, they come to your door. You have some deity verses. And by the way, when they come to your door, another deity verse is John chapter 20, verse 28, where Thomas said, my Lord and my God, I always ask them to read it in the New World Translation if they have it. When they grab it, they open it up, then I ask them a question. Is Thomas calling Jesus God? Because they haven't changed it in their translation. 
I did that once to my neighbor who was a Jehovah Witness. I said, go inside and read it. He never came out. He called up the Jehovah Witnesses to come out and minister to him because he is completely flummoxed because all he did was read the scripture. And that's what we want to do. We want to be prepared to, to give it. I didn't say, wait a second, it's kind of like the uh, gunfighter. Hold on, let me pull out my six-shooter. Wait, i got to put my bullets in it just a second here. And they start sticking the bullets in. No, you need to just pull that thing out. Is anybody offended by the use of guns? I hope you're not. It's this idea we're offended by so much which is out there today. You know, and I'm not a gun purveyor, all that kind of stuff. It's just we, we have to be able to talk like we used to be able to talk without somebody else being offended and making them feel bad. If we feel bad, well, you know, shame, if we experience shame at some point, shame leads to humility, which leads to salvation. And not that we bring shame upon people. You ought to feel ashamed of yourself. You know, we're to do this with gentleness and respect. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. So the Jehovah Witness comes to your door. You have John chapter 20, verse 28. You have the deity verses there. You have Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It's appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. You have all of that. And I have seen it before where the Jehovah Witnesses say, okay, we're just leaving right now. Did you used to be a witness? And they want to know that because... If you've been a witness, they don't have to talk to you because you've probably been excommunicated. And no, I've never been a Jehovah Witness. Or what about the Mormons? They come to your door. Now, these are practical tools. You can be a witness of Jesus Christ when they come to your house. And how good is that? You don't even have to go find them. They come to you, and we should not be closing the door. We should be those disciples that are ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within. So they come to your door. You know, they have these temples. And I've been to the one in uh, Salt Lake City, and I toured this one when they opened it down here off of the Highway 5 and walked through, and they gave you little booties, and they ripped up the carpet because we were not worthy to walk through there being unbelievers. We were not temple recommend. And so the question that I ask them, and I've done this before when a Mormon comes to me, he will say, um, I'll ask him about the temple. and Oh, yeah, we're sealed for all of eternity. And if you're married inside the temple, you go to the celestial kingdom as opposed to the terrestrial or the telestial. And they have their theology going on there. And I say, oh, so you're married in heaven. And they say, yeah, we're married in heaven. I said, you know, that's interesting because in Luke chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him on the issue of marriage. And they said, well, there was a certain man because the Sadducees did not believe in marriage. And they said there was a certain man. He married one man or a woman married one man and that man died. And of course, the woman had to marry the brother to raise up offspring for the first son. And it went through all seven sons. The guys were dying. My question would be, what's she doing to these guys to have them die? But it gets through all seven. And then they ask the question, what is it? exactly that or who would she be married to when she gets to heaven since she's been married to all seven and you know what jesus said you err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of god there is neither marrying nor given in marriage in heaven and you present that to them they have these temples and that's their whole thing is to get to the celestial kingdom and also they all they also believe that you get a second chance hebrews nine twenty seven. If you have that under your belt, you just shing, and you pull it out, and you just do a little slice thing, and it causes the conviction in there. And they have to start searching for what's going on. And so these are the tools.
You have how to get saved. You have the assurance of salvation. You have something for a Jehovah Witness that comes to your door. You have something for a Mormon that comes to your door. And even after this, well, do you guys know what the biggest objection is for people who are of no religious affiliation? What their biggest objection is to come to Christ is because there is evil. They look at the evil and they say, that's why I don't believe in God. There was one guy I just saw an interview. Uh, they asked him, well, what do you think about God? And he goes, God? Well, what about the child who's dying in the hospital of terminal cancer, leukemia? Where's God in that? And we end up looking at that stuff, and we don't have an answer to give them. If you're interested in reading up on this, Norm Geisler has a book, If God, Why Evil? And in that book, he explains certain things about this problem of evil, and we need to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within. Again, First Peter 3.15. Well, what do you say to them when they say that? You know, I turn to them and I say, well, since you believe that there is evil, you almost also must believe that there is good. And they would say, well, yes, there is good. And you probably also believe that there is ultimate good. And they would say, well, usually, yes, I do believe that there is ultimate good, like an absolute truth, like it's absolutely evil that a child would die tragically of leukemia inside a hospital. And they're going right along and say, absolutely. So if there's absolute truth or absolute right and wrong or an absolute law, there must be an absolute lawgiver. And that absolute lawgiver who is all good must be God. So by saying that there is evil, you're proclaiming that there is also a God. Would that not also be correct? And all of a sudden they come to this realization or they say, well, I don't believe in absolute truth. And you turn to them and say, do you believe that absolutely? And you should see, I, I did that to one young man once. He goes, oh, you got me. It wasn't me that got you. Norm Geisler helped me out with that one. And so we want to be able to do that. And they said, well, how do you explain evil? You know, God created everything. He created evil. I'm going to give it to you in a form of a syllogism that the men on Wednesdays have already had. The, the syllogism goes like this. God created everything. God created evil. Or excuse me, evil is a thing. Therefore, God created evil. That's the syllogism the, word, the world uses. So God created everything. Evil is a thing. Therefore, God created evil. The proper way to say it is, God created everything. Evil is not a thing. Therefore, God did not create evil. So how do you describe evil? Evil is like rot in a tree. Can you go up and actually grab the rot in a tree? No, you, you grab the remains of that which is rotted, but you cannot grab the rot. Or what about rust on an automobile? When rust is finished, what's left? Nothing. nothing. There's nothing left. You had some semblance of metal, which is in there, but it was attacked by something that is called, and here's the big word, privation. It is a privation. And so if you explain to them, God did not create evil. Evil is a privation. Evil is something that was not created that exists. And it is necessary to have good in order for evil to exist. And then you start explaining about Satan and his fall. And you give them that information. And if you have your screwdriver and your pliers and your electrical tester, you're ready for all of these different situations which would come up. 
And then finally, if somebody says, well, you know, I don't understand this idea of salvation. You know the Romans road. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have those under your belt, it's not that you have to quote each verse to them. There no unrighteous, no, not one. Uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And God demonstrates his love for us. Then in while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And how sin entered the world. All of these things, we want to make sure we have them under our belt so we can use them at a moment's notice. That means if you put everything else with it, the knowledge of God pursuing Jesus Christ and him crucified, you have the doctrine under your belt, you're able to be, quote unquote, not Jesus like the word of God, but carry within you the word of God and give it at any time, you are mature. That's what we're called to be. We shouldn't have to go load our bullets, so to speak. You take out that sword and you wield it. God wants us to do that. You know, the armor of God, which is in Ephesians chapter 6, first message I ever gave in a home Bible study. You have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace the loins gird about with the truth and you have the shield of faith what is the last thing that you have that's the offensive weapon the sword of the spirit if you don't have the sword of the spirit you just get beat up all the time you go out there and you want to be a witness for christ you want to be fully mature you want to lead others in the way and by the way the first passage that i gave you in ephesians god gave us apostles prophets evangelists pastor teachers why for the equipping of the saints guess who's supposed to go out and bring in the unsaved It's not the pastors and the teachers. It's everyone. We're supposed to be involved in that. So that's my encouragement to you guys this morning. Know these things. These are basic tools that you can put into your pockets. You can put into your brain, so to speak. You can carry them with you. And you can help lead people in the way of righteousness. We are not just supposed to go to church on Sunday, sing a few songs, give a little bit in the offering plate or the basket or wherever you place it and think everything is good. It's not. And by the way, when I talk like this, this is not to bring you under condemnation for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And so if you're walking with Christ, great, but who doesn't need to improve? Even I need to improve. I was reviewing some of this. I go, wait, do I have that verse down? I need to go back and make sure I have that verse down that I am equipped fully being prepared for any situation which might arise. So my encouragement to you is do not feel condemned if you don't have all this down. If you're a 15 year old and your mommy's still dressing you, it's just tragic. But we have the ability to change that. We don't have to stagnate. We don't have to be apathetic. We can be on fire for the Lord. May the Lord fill you full of his spirit May you gain the knowledge that is necessary to lead others in the way of righteousness. And may God say to you when you enter into heaven, well done, now good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how enlightening it is. May you, Lord, use us as we dive even deeper into its pages to make sure we understand what is written there. That it might First of all, help us in our walks. We might develop the character. We might remain steadfast and persevere in the faith so that our faith 
is strengthened. And Father, for those who are maybe discouraged, maybe they haven't been doing that, or maybe they're failing in some area, I would ask for your grace to just be completely abundantly shed upon them, knowing that you love unconditionally, Lord. We thank you that you are our shepherd, that you care for us. I thank you for pastors which have gone before us and prepared the way, those who have even given their lives for the sake of us knowing you. And we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.